Oh, it's 907 at WCTF Radio, AM 680, FM 98.5. Set your buttons on your automobile radio, one on each line, the AM line and this AM 680, and the FM line is 98.5. And you'll hear the same programming, WPTF uh, News, Weather, and you're going to want to know about that, and uh, traffic reports, and uh, among other programs, the Tom Kearney Show, Monday through Friday evenings from 9 to 10, with a little bit of live and in real-time radio. We try to bring you things that are serviceable and entertaining, and tonight's program falls into that category. The gentleman who is our guest tonight is Mr. Rod Konsky, formerly of the National Weather Service and now a meteorologist, as he would be in any case uh, in private industry. He's been visiting with us for at least 25, between 25 and 30 years, and I always enjoy when he comes because we... we get to talk about the weather, and I learn a little more about the weather, and we're going to talk about some of the things that are bearing down upon this part of the world, like uh, how warm it is in Seattle, Washington, and where lightning is striking in North Carolina. And also take a look at the Atlantic and find out that there's a hurricane named Elsa out there who's moving in our general direction pretty fast. I say our general direction. So, right is that an acceptable in, in, introduction? Yes. I, <laughs> thank you, uh, Tom. Uh, it's, uh, I want to clarify a point, though, about Elsa. Uh, Elsa is just a tropical storm right now. It's not a hurricane, but uh, it is located uh, uh, down in the tropical Atlantic uh, east of Barbados, and uh, it is uh, traveling westward into the Caribbean, uh, as expected to be. And, uh, and and it may attain uh, hurricane strength uh, as it's south of Puerto Rico and Hispaniola. Uh, but it's an interesting uh, situation because uh, we have a lot of uh, model projections now, more than we've ever had before. And, uh, and they go out, uh, you know, five to ten days. And uh, uh, so we're, it, it's, uh, compared to... The, you know, many years ago where you, you had maybe two or three days' worth of information that you could, uh, uh, you know, make forecasts on and uh, predictions of track, uh, we see all sorts of tracks now uh, many days in advance. And, uh, and uh, at about uh, 10 or 12 different models, it goes uh, the spread uh, for the uh, trajectory of this uh, storm, Elsa, anywhere from the central Gulf of Mexico uh, on up to uh, well off the east coast of, uh, of the United States. Uh, the middle of that, uh, of that spread of model projections uh, has it going up uh, across Cuba and, uh, and uh, onto the west coast of uh, Florida. So uh, we'll, we'll kind of wait and see, but there's a lot of uncertainty right now because uh, the model spread, as I said, is anywhere from the central Gulf of Mexico uh, eastward, all the way almost to Bermuda. So, uh, so there's a lot of uh, differences of opinion among the models. And I shouldn't have made the mistake of calling it a hurricane. I guess I was uh, expecting a little more, but uh, you know, of it. Uh, but in, but in fact, one of the things that I have heard that the models are saying is that it may not ever get to 75 miles per hour. That 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 is correct. That is and, correct. And. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting battle right now, and I'm going to be really curious about uh, about how this unfolds because the American model, uh, it's called the GFS model, uh, is uh, 
has been the strongest and the most persistent at uh, taking that storm across Cuba and, uh, and, and the west coast of Florida. The European model, which is a, a very highly respected model, has the, uh, has the tropical storm going across uh, Hispaniola, uh, that is like Dominican Republic and Haiti, and there's a lot of mountainous terrain there. And uh, it, it essentially breaks the storm apart as it comes northward and never regains its, uh, its organization as a tropical storm. So it's a, it's a big battle between uh, a, a very strong American projection and, uh, and a, uh, a very much weaker uh, projection by the European model. We are, in fact, having that busy season, seemingly, that uh, was predicted. I heard today that uh, this date, uh, when it was named Elsa, was the earliest date we had ever had a hurricane name using the letter E. Uh, usually we're you know, further into July or, or August uh, to get the E storm, but we're, we're to E in the alphabet already, and it's just July the 1st. Uh, but anyway, we'll have to, have to keep an eye on it and invite to stay tuned to WPTF to, to, to get some direct right. with regard to it. And so, well, but. My, I, I might add to that story. Uh, uh, the, naming, the naming of storms has, uh, has changed a great deal over the last uh, 20 to 30 years. Uh, there's a lot of technology that allows us to see storms a lot better than we used to see them back uh, in, the, in the last century. And uh, I was, there was an article that was put out by the chief uh, tropical, of uh, tropical analysis and forecasting down in uh, the National Hurricane Center, Chris Lanzia. Uh, and, uh, and really, he said the doubling of named storms over the last century is likely due to the technology change and not some natural or man-made climate change. Uh, the technology, he listed about 15 different uh, advances in technology that have, uh, over uh, many, many years. And the last, uh, over half of those 15 advances have occurred uh, since the year 2000. And by advances, I mean uh, the way that we detect storms now uh, using satellites, using radar, using microwave sensors, uh, there's this thing called scatterometers that allows us to continuously see uh, wind measurements over every part of the ocean from satellites now, uh, and all kinds of uh, techniques now that allow us to spot any point uh, in the ocean that might have uh, winds of uh, tropical storm or, or hurricane strength. And, and back, you know, back in the uh, the 1900s, uh, you know, especially the early 1900s. All you had were ship's logs, and before radio was ever invented uh, for ships uh, in the 1920s, uh, you know, it was very hard to uh, uh, accumulate information enough across the Atlantic to know exactly where the storms were and how many there were out there. Uh, but until satellites came around, and especially geostationary satellites in the 70s, a lot of storms would go by and never get uh, and never get named because nobody would detect them, or they'd be out in the middle of nowhere where everybody could see them. Now, well, uh, they reconstructed uh, they reconstructed information all the way back to the uh, 1800s with the available uh, techniques and figuring out how many that may have been missed uh, way back then. 
and and it's uh, and it, it's really uh, uh, kind of a deceptive thing to say that there's more neem storms now than there ever were before because we just didn't know enough back uh, uh, in, in in earlier years of, of hurricane uh, uh, prediction. Well, you know that's quite often the case. You know we we discover. Uh, there are more crimes committed, and and the question that comes up, I'm I'm intending this as a as a parallel case, uh, uh, and we discover that there are really no more crimes. This more of them are being reported. And yeah, I know right. I know, for instance, in 1938, uh, the famous hurricane that plowed into New England and almost killed Catherine Hepburn, among other things. Uh, sure. Uh, got lost along the coast. I mean, they they yep. knew there was one out there, but unless it happened to cross. Uh, the path of a ship, uh, nobody knew where it was, and it sort right. of got to New England before they expected it to. So uh, right. you, make a, you make a very good point. Another, you know, another thing, uh, this was a very interesting article by Chris Lanzi, as I, as I mentioned, and he, uh, he showed uh, uh, tr- tracks of, of ships where, they, where, the, where the tracking was uh, during hurricane season across the Atlantic, and if you go back, a hundred years ago, uh, there were hardly any ships uh, in the in the tropical Atlantic at all going through, and part of the reason was because the ships did not want to encounter any hurricanes, and they knew <laughs> right. it would be right. safer to travel up north than it would be down south. So, uh, so you really had an absence of data uh, to know about back then. Uh, you know, to get a kind of a context, though, you know, I always advise people. Uh, to uh, if they're interested in the, the hurricane history, uh, especially in North Carolina, that that book by Jay Barnes, North Carolina Hurricane History, uh, gives a good idea of what you know what is the potential for storms, not only in the in the midst of the hurricane season in August and, and September, but any time of the of the year. You know, I came across uh, one of his. Uh, 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 essays, or, or shall we say, the sections where you know he, he writes a chronology of of hurricanes uh, since since the colonial times and then even the 1500s, and he talked about a, a rare early June hurricane that swept through North Carolina in 1825, leaving destruction uh, everywhere from Cuba to New England, uh, and you know floods in uh, in New Bern and 20 ships being driven ashore on Ocracoke and uh, all kinds of damage occurring in, in eastern North Carolina, and that was early June of 1825. So, I mean, the storms are not new, and they can occur in June and early parts of the year as well as uh, as in the midst of a hurricane season. And uh, you don't even have to go back that far. Uh, I remember Bertha occurring in uh, around July 12th, uh, uh, and you may remember that storm, too, coming, uh, coming as a July storm. So... Uh, uh, so they can occur this time of year. Well, I, I'm thinking Bertha may have been, there may have been more than one Bertha, but the, the year that... 1996, I'm sorry. It was 1996. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, uh, the, that's the one I was thinking about because that was the year Fran came on September 5th. Right. And, uh, you know, I have one of those outside lights that the power company will come and put up so you can light your backyard. And I, yep. 
I had to replace the light twice that year because it was damaged by Bertha and then it was damaged by Fran. That's just my way of remembering what, what happened to the particular situation. Let's take a break yeah. here and we'll come back and maybe talk about some more about hurricanes, but certainly talk about the weather with Rod Gonski, our meteorologist on duty on the Tom Kearney Show tonight. We'll be back right after this. And it's the first day of July, and uh, we're talking uh, about the weather with Rod Gonski, formerly with the National Weather Service and now a meteorologist in private industry. And so far tonight, we've talked about hurricanes and the possibilities for her for tropical storm. Is that right, Rod, or did or is it just tropical depression? Yeah, that was correct. Uh, it's a tropical, tropical storm, storm also that's. Uh, out in the tropical Atlantic right now, and uh, some of the models suggest that it uh, may come up this way. If it was to uh, affect us, uh, according to the models, or the uh, the thought is that uh, some of the rain or, or some of the storm could uh, reach North Carolina around the middle of next week, maybe Wednesday or Thursday. But again, I want to stress that the, uh, the spread of model projections uh, ranges anywhere from the central Gulf of Mexico uh, all the way over almost to Bermuda. So, uh, you know, there's quite a quite a, a disparity amongst the models. And it'll be interesting to see how, how these projections uh, uh, try to refine themselves as we, uh, yeah, as the storm enters the Caribbean and, and especially the, uh, uh, the area around Hispanola and, and Cuba. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll tell us a lot if that storm can make it through the mountainous areas of, of those islands and uh, and hold its own uh, coming northward. So uh, it'll be an interesting situation, so everybody should uh, really pay attention. And uh, uh, it's expected to be a busy season this year. I mean, uh, the last uh, several months, uh, those people that make seasonal forecasts uh, have indicated that uh, it's going to be a busy year for the Atlantic. Of course, 2020 was a very busy year, too. Uh, with 20-some-odd uh, named storms, and, uh, you know, that, uh, that could be happening this year, too. Uh, the, the, uh, the height of the storm season uh, is, of course, uh, late August uh, and into uh, September. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the benchmark storm for North Carolina uh, was Hazel back in 1954, which struck around the middle of October. So... Uh, you're you're not out of the out of the risk of hurricanes uh, even as late as October, and of course Hazel was the only Category Four storm to ever hit this far north. So uh, uh, the categories ranging from you know strengths of uh, one to five, five being the uh, the most extreme, uh, such as Camille back in 1969 in Louisiana, but for for North Carolina. Hurricane Hazel as a Category 4 striking in 1954 was, uh, was, was the most powerful to date uh, in modern history. And, uh, uh, you know, actually in the middle of last century, uh, we had uh, some of the strongest uh, or some of the most frequent strong storms. Uh, you know, I was looking back at the records, and uh, if, if you look at the, the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s, there were uh, anywhere from 8 to 10 you know, strong, by, by strong, I mean Category 3-type storms uh, affecting uh, the, uh, the U.S. mainland uh, each of those years. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, it, there's, there's quite a bit of activity, yet, and, it, and it's cyclic, really. It, it's, uh, you know, we had a busy time uh, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and then it, 
it, it really uh, became quite benign in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and then it started up again in the in the mid 90s, and we're still in that uh, that uh, uh, that episode of having uh, large frequencies of storms, uh, you know. And so, uh, part of that is, of course, the uh, the tropical uh, Atlantic and the uh, the warmth of the uh, sea surface temperatures out in the Atlantic, and that helps that that helps, of course, uh, get the hurricane started uh, with the uh, uh, with the warm uh, surface temperatures of the waters out there. Okay, we'll, we'll we'll keep an eye on uh, and an ear on the hurricanes, and you, as you pointed out, we sh- we need to do that. And a, a good way, of course, is to stay tuned to WPTF because we have weather forecasts usually more than once every hour. And of, of course, we are going to stay on the case of the hurricane if it is in fact headed in our direction. Um, Ron Gunsey's gotten sort of like Dr. Mike Wallen, and uh, when we talk about uh, what we're going to do on a show the night he's been invited, he gives me a cheat sheet, so to speak. And <laughs> we have, well, actually, what we do is talk about what might be good things to talk about tonight. And one of the things we can we can only barely get started on it, but I I, I was glad to hear because I was going to ask you if we could talk about the heat because when I sure. I think I read that. He got up to 116 in, in uh, Portland, Oregon, or somewhere like uh, yeah. last week, and uh, so on. And so I would get you to ask you if you would talk about that. We've got about a minute and a half before we need to take a break. If we could get started on that, and we'll carry that over and come back after the news and and uh, work up the whole story of the heat in, in the western part of the United States. Yeah, the uh, the western part of the United States has been uh, quite quite warm this year. Uh, really, anywhere. Uh, west of the Rockies, uh, you know, uh, to the West Coast uh, and up into Western Canada, uh, has been much above normal for this year, and uh, that's opposed to uh, uh, most of the rest of the country. Actually, uh, east of the Rockies and uh, in, in south of the Mason-Dixon line, uh, we've been actually near or below normal for temperatures in the last 30 days. Uh, June has been uh, quite temperate for us, so we've been we've been uh, Pretty lucky as far as summertime temperatures are concerned, and uh, the prospect for heat waves. Uh, the uh, one of the things that uh, that uh, well, I'm, I'm going to use this as a kind of a vamp here because we're coming up on the news. Right. Uh, I have a friend who who, who, ride, who he's my age too, and but he rides bicycles. He rides. He's the kind who rides forty or fifty miles a day. And he was telling me the other day he was out in Colorado riding in a and a kind of a tour that they had around Durango, which I think is near the Four Corners, and how how hot it was. Uh-huh. And I I tried to decide whether I should have his head examined or not for doing that. <laughs> he was up around ten or eleven thousand feet, and, and he's my age, so he needs to look out for himself. In any event, oh we'll talk more about the heat in the West after we take a break on WPTF. A little bit of live and in real time radio where we can keep you up to date on things. And tonight we get a chance to talk about uh, Hurricane, not Hurricane, wrong again, Tropical Storm Elsa, as uh, meteorologist Rod Gonski, who is our guest tonight, uh, got me straight on. And, and of course he was right about that. It hasn't become a hurricane yet. And in fact, uh, from the reports I've seen, it might not become a hurricane, but you need to stay in touch with, uh, with some information source, and WPTF will do for that. Uh, to, to find out what's going on. And, and now we've focused across the continent to the west where when they look at the record book, Rod, for the for the t- 
temperatures for the northwest. It's really going to be an interesting thing because all the records are going to be for 2021. And uh, what makes it a little bit more of a problem for those people is it typically doesn't have hot periods like we've had, and a lot of people don't have air conditioning. Well, that's true. Um, one thing I want to point out is that the west is very dry. Uh, and I don't mean that it's just a drought. I mean the, the air is typically very, very dry. Where your your uh, what we call dew point, uh, the mm -hmm. point at which uh, the temperature at which uh, dew forms because of saturation in the in the air, uh, those dew points are down typically uh, in the 30s uh, out there, and uh, and that's even with temperatures of 100 degrees or more. So the air becomes very, very dry. And when you have very, very dry air like that, uh, there are, you know, the sweat that comes off of you can cool you more than it does around here when it gets above 100 degrees. So uh, the heat index uh, is oftentimes below the temperature out there because of the drying effect of uh, moisture uh, from your body. So, uh, so if you, you know, like, Flash water on yourself or anything like that. You you have a much uh, a much greater cooling effect than when temperatures or dew point zero in the 70s and you can't get rid of the sweat. It's just it just accumulates on you and, and the air feels heavy. So it's a different animal out there. Uh, and and over you know over 105 under 110 degrees, it's still pretty searing. It doesn't feel quite as bad as when you have uh, all the humidity like we do around here. Uh, the other thing about the dryness of the air is that those systems to cool places, even if they don't have air conditioning, uh, those those systems that use moisture and water to evaporate and cause cooling are more effective out there uh, than they would be around here. So they they do have, and of course, with the drier air, they cool off at night much more dramatically uh, than than we do around here. Here, if you get temperatures over 100 degrees, sometimes it won't get below 80. There, the temperature is quite often in the, in the 60s and maybe even in the upper 50s, even with those hot temperatures during the middle of the day. So it's, uh, again, a different uh, type of uh, heat wave than, than we would have here in the southeastern United States and especially North Carolina. Uh, uh, about the heat wave that, that has occurred you know, out in the northwest, we're talking about the Pacific Northwest now, uh, mostly because that's where it was the most unusual. Uh, of course, they had heat down in the desert southwest, the Mojave Desert, uh, Death Valley, Southern California, uh, Arizona, New Mexico. They have heat all the time in the summertime, and their temperatures, you know, well over 100 degrees is quite normal there. But in, in places like Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, uh, Canada, uh, it's... Uh, it's very unusual. It was a very, very unusual event. But one thing I wanted to point out is, is not only was it caused by high pressure in the upper atmosphere uh, over western Canada, but the position of that high pressure system caused easterly winds, meaning winds coming from the east over the mountains, uh, not only the Rocky Mountains, but the Cascade Mountains. And so you are taking air from a desert plateau in uh, eastern Washington and Oregon, driving it up over the Cascades and then compressing it on the on the west side of the Cascades in the Puget Sound area and down in the uh, Columbia River Basin, 
And when you compress air like that, it's, it's, I don't know if you remember talking about this, Tom, about Chinook-type winds or Fane-type winds where you have hot, dry air coming down the mountain and, and, and undergoing a pressurization. That is what caused the extreme conditions that we saw in Seattle and uh, in Portland uh, and Vancouver. It was just uh, it was these compression winds. And, and that was made possible by the, this, uh, these easterly winds across the Cascades. They don't happen very often that far north, but they do happen. And, and, uh, and if, we, if we go back way back in time, like in the 1800s, there were newspaper accounts of similar types of winds on the West Coast that caused uh, what they called burning winds, where temperatures would go as high as 133 degrees in places like Santa Barbara, California, uh, from this kind of, a, of effect. And it would, it would actually burn the vegetation, burn the fruits on the trees, things like that. It was, uh, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, it's not going to occur in every spot uh, where it can be recorded. But uh, these types of extremes will occur on occasion almost anywhere, in, you know, anywhere you have a mountain range where, the, where these hot, dry winds starting out in the desert blow across the mountains and then get compressed again uh, further down. And uh, I believe in eastern Washington, you really around Spokane, for instance, which had some very high temperatures. Yeah. You have a, a flat yeah. plain there that the winds can coming from the mountains can blow straight across toward Seattle and toward the coast and right. toward the Cascades, as a matter of fact. It's an elevated plateau area in eastern Washington. It's, it's really kind of a desert there, you know, in eastern Oregon, too. And, uh, you know, precipitation is typically very low in there. Uh, and... Uh, and so you're starting out in an elevated plateau, maybe at around two, 3,000 feet, and then you're driving that air up around six to 8,000 feet, maybe even higher over the Cascades, and, and then letting it settle down on the, uh, to near sea level as you get down to a uh, Puget Sound. And, and doing that, it's just uh, the, the, the increase in pressure, the compression of that air, just makes it steering, and that's what we saw. That's what we saw with this uh, with this event. I don't I don't know if there will be any connection between the situation of, of the the kind of fires you know that they've had in the West over the last few years, but I think uh, recently either the governor of California or the president one mentioned the fact that this was going to be a, a really bad year for for fires, and and I don't know if the conditions you're describing make it more likely that they would occur or not, but. Uh, but the, apparently they're in for another rough year. Could be. Uh, it depends on on a, on on a number of things. But you know, I was a fire weather forecaster here in North Carolina, and uh, back in the '80s, and I was in charge of the fire weather program, as a matter of fact, uh, for the state uh, while I was in the National Weather Service. And I would attend conferences out on the West Coast, and I know that a lot of the foresters out there said that it's sort of a it's a mixed type of signal that goes on out there because if you have a lot of rain in the in the winter time and the early spring and there's good water levels, what you're doing is you're you're allowing the vegetation to accumulate out there. You get a lot more volatile fuels that that grow in in a in a, in a wet period like early spring, and then even you know it's always going to dry out on the west coast in the summertime because they have a Mediterranean type of climate uh, and it's typically dry 
in in uh, in the in the summer months, and so the vegetation will will peel out regardless of of uh, uh, you know because the climatology allows it to dry out during the middle of the summer. They don't have the thunderstorms like we do around here uh, in the middle of summer. They, they they completely dry out during the summer. It's rare to see rainfall anywhere there any time during the summer uh, on the west coast, and so. Uh, and, and so if, if you have a wet period in the, in the early part of the year and you accumulate all that new vegetation, that makes a lot more volatility, more fuel for fires later in the year. Uh, and, of course, a lot depends on the wind and uh, whether you have these high-pressure systems setting up uh, in the desert areas and in the Great Basin around Salt Lake City uh, and in Idaho and that area, pushing that air over the over the here in Nevada, over the Cascades, and down in the coastal areas, that will determine a lot of uh, how, how busy the fire weather season is. And, uh, it's, you know, so there are factors that, that kind of are counterintuitive to some degree uh, and, and, and conflict out there. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it, we'll, we'll wait and see and see how that happens. Now, of course, in the, in the Pacific Northwest, with all these, uh, with all these uh, recent very hot temperatures, uh, parts of uh, eastern Washington and, and eastern Oregon will have above normal fire activity likely very soon uh, because of the dryness. But uh, uh, it, it, you know, it doesn't mean that uh, that they're going to have uh, an overall busy fire season because you know there's still a pretty good snowpack out there in the Cascades, and they're getting a lot of meltwater uh, into their into their river and and. Uh, uh, into their rivers and into their streams and uh, into the uh, area, you know, east of the ca- or west of the Cascades. So, uh, you know, there's mixed signals right now as to uh, how bad it's going to be. Well, Gonski, helping us understand what's going on in the western part of the United States vis-a-vis really hot weather, and I've learned two or three things tonight that I had not learned before, which is always a good thing. We're going to pause now at, uh, hey, let's see, it's 944, it's up WPTF, and when we come back, I'm, we're going to try to bring Rod back to the East Coast because the next thing on our schedule to talk about tonight is something that comes with the summer weather and the spring weather in North Carolina, and that is lightning. And uh, we'll talk about that on WPTF right after this. Thursday night, July the 1st, and uh, tomorrow night, of course, it's going to be trivia night on uh, on WPTF, and we're going to have uh, general trivia, and we're going to have a little bit about the uh, Declaration of Independence and the 4th of July coming up this Sunday. But tonight we're talking about the weather with uh, a gentleman who's been our guest many times over the years, who is a uh, former meteorologist with the National Weather Service and is now a meteorologist in private industry, Mr. Rod Gonski. And when Rod comes, we usually talk about and explore different aspects of, of the weather and uh, uh, try to understand exactly what's going on there. And Rod suggested, and, and, and I concur with him, that a good thing to talk about at this time of year and in the spring and summer in North Carolina is lightning. Uh, we both agreed that we, as best we could remember that uh, the number of lightning strikes uh, and, and deaths in North Carolina was pretty high on the list, and North Carolina usually ranked in the top five. Am I, am I doing okay, Rod, on that, that particular that's, statistic? That's pretty accurate, Tom, yes. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're in the midst of the uh, climatological period of uh, greatest uh, 
lightning frequency uh, here uh, in central North Carolina uh, coming up right now. Uh, the, the height of the lightning season, so to speak, is around uh, July the 10th. So, uh, uh, and, and that's based on the collection of uh, cloud-to-ground lightning strokes that have been recorded uh, over the last, uh, oh, 20 years or so, I guess. I don't have the exact numbers here, but uh, but it is quite frequent. Uh, we, uh, of course, typically in, in central North Carolina, we have anywhere from 45 to 50 days a year uh, in which we experience thunderstorms. And uh, in, in this time of year, uh, quite frequently, we, we have them almost every day uh, somewhere in central North Carolina. So... Uh, when you have a thunderstorm, of course, the, uh, the definition of a thunderstorm is thunder and lightning. You have uh, the sound and you have the sight of, uh, of the electrical discharges that, uh, that go on uh, with thunderstorms. And when they strike from the cloud to the ground, of course, they can uh, hit near where people live. And, uh, of course, property can be damaged as well. So uh, that puts us at risk. And uh, we have to take that into account as we go on doing our activities uh, in central North Carolina. And, of course, uh, there's a lot of safety rules out there. Uh, I'm sure Nick Petro uh, from the National Weather Service can enlighten you on that as well. But, of course, uh, being out in the open and being the highest object uh, uh, anywhere near a dark cloud uh, puts you at risk of being, uh, uh, you know, struck by lightning. If you feel the hairs on your uh, head and on your arms, uh, rising up uh, with a dark cloud uh, nearby, you should uh, you should get as low as possible. Hopefully, you're near uh, a place where you can get indoors and, and out of the open. Uh, of course, people uh, recreating. It's a very popular area for recreating. I do it myself. I was playing golf. Uh, you're you're on the 17th hole and you want to finish that uh, that round of 18, and you see a cloud coming. You want to continue to do that and uh and unfortunately that's not the safe thing to do uh so uh you, you just have to really uh rationalize uh and and determine your risk and it is quite uh quite a risk uh, to be out there uh the only object uh in the middle of a field or uh with a with a, a bunch of uh, uh metal uh, near you like golf carts or fences or uh, iron golf clubs or what have you, uh, you are a target. So uh, uh, take that into account as we head through this uh, month of uh, high lightning occurrence. Now, fortunately, uh, the next couple of weeks, you know, I've been uh, I do this uh, the the products that I do for the uh, Early Alert Incorporated, uh, the emergency management company that I uh, that I do work for, and and I've I've been looking at uh, uh, the prospects for thunderstorms, not only here, but in, in, uh, in uh, most of uh, eastern and central uh, United States. And uh, uh, it looks like a, a relatively calm period uh, uh, this year uh, for thunderstorm activity. So hopefully the, the frequency won't be as great uh, this year as what we've seen in the past as far as uh, the occurrence of lightning. But uh, we still have to keep those safety rules in mind. Uh, we've had fewer probably agricultural workers than we used to have, but as I was saying to you before we came on the air, we, their places have probably been taken up by people playing golf, so we probably have about <laughs> the same number of people outside. Well, well certainly, 
certainly farmer, uh, you know, farmers, uh, people in agriculture uh, are going to be out there. I, one thing I did, I've noticed though, is a lot of the tractors now are, are well enclosed, air conditioned, and everything else. Uh, so being in a enclosed uh, cabin, like on a tractor, is actually a, a, a more safe area because if lightning is to strike there, it's likely to be uh, directed along the shell of the of the uh, of of the enclosure rather than through it. And the same thing goes with cars and trucks. Uh, you know, the old the old tale, which is false, is that the tires protect you because they, they keep you from being ground. But that's not the, the case. It's the the if lightning strikes a car, it'll the uh, the electricity will be conducted around the shell, the metal shell of the car, instead of coming into the interior, and that's what protects you is the metal shell of the car. The same thing is true for a, a jet plane uh, traveling through a thunderstorm. If the if the lightning strikes the, the jet plane, it's 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 going to be directed around the shell of the plane and not into the interior. If it, if, if, if it was not that way, then it would be dangerous to fly near a thunderstorm. But it's, uh, the, the metal shell is what protects you, not, uh, not like the tires of the car or anything like that. Well, we've got about a minute left here, and just about exactly. So I'm going to ask you a question about something we talked a lot about last time. In the last map I saw seemed to indicate that the drought was had receded east of I-95, but we still had... Uh, some some degree of drought in the central part of North Carolina. Is that your knowledge? If, if you if you've looked at that information lately, yes, I have. Uh, I looked at the rainfall across North Carolina in the last thirty days, and it seems like uh, most places east of Route One, uh, near or east of Route One, uh, have had a, a a plentiful supply of rain. Uh, and that includes uh, the, the Triangle area, too, uh, where last month we were almost double the amount of rain that we normally have. I think at, at Raleigh-Durham Airport, uh, the total for the month was uh, seven and a half inches. And typically, uh, we only have about uh, three, three and a half inches uh, of rain during the month of June. And so, Rod, we're uh, going to need to go now because we've run slow okay. out of time. But I'm going to thank you for being with us tonight. And uh, for providing a lot of good information. I've learned a whole bunch of things tonight, and maybe we'll talk again soon, okay? Right on. Take care. Rod Gonski uh, from the formerly the, the National Weather Service, our meteorologist on WPTF, and uh, we'll invite you to stay tuned tomorrow night for Trivia Night on Friday night.